Well, welcome, CWC family. It's uh, a pleasure to be bringing the word to you this morning. Um, hope you're enjoying your, your morning cup of whatever you have. I got tea this morning. I'm here, to, I'm here to spill the tea this morning, as the kids are saying these days. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's Palm Sunday. Uh, if you're not familiar um, with uh, this day of celebration, it's, uh, it's reminiscent of the triumphal entry of Jesus into, into Jerusalem, but we'll, we'll get more into that as we go into the message. Today, i like to bring some context and then go through three points and maybe a, a few points of application today. Uh, the story um, in the context that I want to bring this morning that talks about uh, the kingdom of God, it talks about uh, the Messiah. We're going to look into uh, what did that mean for the Jewish people. If you've been jo- joining us in the Connect Groups, uh, shameless plug for Connect Groups, uh, we just wrapped those up. Uh, we talked about the kingdom of God and we learned a little bit more about what that means from uh, the Jewish perspective going through uh, some Old Testament texts and then what did that mean for Jesus. Uh, we're actually starting another Connect Group here soon. It'll be the four weeks leading up to Memorial Day. So Make sure you're looking for signups. Um, but we've been uh, continually meeting through uh, Google Hangouts, through through Zoom. We've been we've been trying to stay connected and looking at the the kingdom of God. We're going to touch on a little bit of what we've been going over through those meetings. Um, so uh, stay tuned. But at first, I want to I want to describe a scene for you from the Old Testament. You might be familiar with this scene. You might not be. It's a it's a pretty uh, famous scene within the Old Testament. Um, but there once was a great nation with a powerful leader. This great nation had a, had a lot of wealth, had many horses and chariots. They ended up enslaving another nation. They used this nation uh, for forced labor they, um, in order to build um, great buildings. And um, then someone rose up to confront the injustices. But uh, at one point or another, they... They were met with opposition to the leader, and they decided that it was best for their life if they fled. But later, um, they returned to try and once again fight the injustices and, and set the people free. Now, you might be thinking that, oh, this is, this is the story of the Exodus, the story of Moses, um, Israelites being enslaved in Egypt, but the, that's not actually the story that I'm I'm descri- describing this morning. The, the story that I'm describing is actually found in, in 1 Kings 11. And uh, it's not Egypt that is doing the enslaving. It's actually Israel that's doing the enslaving, uh, taking other nations and, and forcing them for their own labor. See, the story, it, it starts with Solomon. It starts with Solomon um, enslaving people, enslaving people to build the temple. Now, now, how do we get to this point? How did we go from Israel being slaves to Israel becoming a great nation, enslaving others? How did we go from being conquered to conquering other nations? Well, our story begins with a warning in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, it's the fifth book of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy um, so if you have your physical Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy 17. We'll, we'll have them up on the screen for you as well. Um, if you are looking them up in your phone, quick tip for you. If you just type in D-E-U-T, bring you right there. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, You've taken possession of it and settled in it. 
and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is uh, to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Now just to sum that up, it, um, the, the word says that you're going to want a king like the other nations. When you do, they're going to need to be appointed by God. They're going to need to be an Israelite. They're not allowed to acquire horses um, or chariots or, or many wives. They're not allowed to stockpile money. And they're to learn the word of God and follow the, the decrees. And they're to be humble. Now, this warning is due to the fact that well, when, king, when kings come into power, it seems, like, it seems like luxury is never enough. When you have a lot of something, it doesn't stop there. You usually want more. And this is, this is not just for kings. You know, this is, this is human nature to want more, to want more power, to want more money, pleasure, right? It's never enough confidence that you could have. If we look over um, the different kings that have ruled over Israel, there's about 40 of them in total from the time when they wanted a king in 1 Samuel 8 is when they first declared that they wanted a king like all the other nations, like Deuteronomy said they would. And from that time on, they would have 40 kings. Now, only a handful of those kings would be considered good. Um, how they describe good is basically one who would follow Yahweh, who would not lead the, the Israelites um, either into to captivity or either worshiping false gods, right? And the books of the Old Testament reflect back on their kings, and they're the ones who decide whether it was a good king or a, they were a bad king. If we think one of the um, kings that would be considered a, a good king even would be King David, and yet he murdered and he took a wife that wasn't his own. So all these kings were susceptible to these types of things because all all people are susceptible to these types of things. And yet, Israel knew that one day there would be a king like no other kings that they would have before. They knew that eventually, Israel would need to be saved from the surrounding nations that would take them over throughout their history. An anointed king, another word for anointed that they used was Messiah. A Messiah king. I'd like to pick up in, in Zechariah, uh, 9, 9 to 10. Zechariah is hanging out um, near the end of the Old Testament with Malachi, um, second last in the Old Testament. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. All right. Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So then the question is, what would a true king do if they would come? How would they bring peace? Because see, the way that they saw other nations bring their peace was by conquering all the territory they could. And then once they've conquered all that they could, they would bring peace, kind of peace through war. Israel has been subjected over their history to other nations like Egypt, like Assyria, like Babylon, like their own tyrant kings, like Persia, like Greece, and like Rome. Rome would be the, uh, the conquering empire, the, the, for their time, the modern-day superpower that effectively have conquered the, the then-now-known world. But this Jewish Messiah and this king would need to come and, in their eyes, overthrow whatever kingdom was already established. Because if their own king was to come and bring their own kingdom, well, there can't be two, king, there can't be two kingdoms. This is exactly where... Um, we find ourselves, when we opened uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, uh, the pages of the Gospels, we find um, that at the time, Rome is the great empire at the time, with a great emperor. And Jesus comes on scene, and his central message is that he's come to bring a kingdom. He's come to bring the kingdom of God, or he's come to bring the kingdom of heaven, if you read in Matthew. He starts to accrue followers, um, many types of people, proclaiming that he is the Messiah, proclaiming that he is the king right? Which brings us to our first point, an unexpected message. If I were to label this message, this, this sermon, I would, I would label it as unexpected, right? So our first point is an unexpected message. Throughout the Gospels, the word Messiah is, is referenced 60 times, mostly in reference either implicitly or explicitly to Jesus. These words come from the lips of the Jewish people, proclaiming that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. This word also from the lips of Gentiles who've heard about a long-awaited Messiah from the Jews, from Jesus' disciples, from Jesus' mouth himself, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and affirming others who also proclaim him to be the Messiah, to be the long-awaited King of the Jews. We see this time and time again throughout the Gospels, a scene like, somebody proclaiming him to be the Messiah after he's done, great mir- uh, done a great miracle. And yet, Jesus affirms it and tells them to not tell anybody about it. Now, why would Jesus tell people who proclaim him to be the Messiah, rightfully so, why would he tell them to not tell anybody about this Messiah? A Messiah had political implications, as we've already talked about, as we've already seen. A Messiah would be a king, Right? And a king, someone showing up during this time, the Roman Empire, greatest empire ever known, and he starts proclaiming himself to be king. As others, he acquires a following, continue to proclaim him to be king. Now, if governing authorities, you know, find out that there's someone else other than the emperor proclaiming to be king, what do you think is going to happen to that person, right? So Jesus, Jesus was a smart dude. He told him, you need to be quiet, at least for now, because He's got an ongoing ministry. He's got, he's got some things to do before this all comes to a head. Which brings us to the disciples, right? 
There are times in their life where they just couldn't understand a teaching, a particular teaching that Jesus brought about him needing to die. In their eyes, a Messiah, a king of the Jews, they didn't come to die. They came to rule, they came to reign, they came to bring peace. So this might be a reason why when Jesus was foretelling his death, the disciples just weren't getting it, right? They couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that a Messiah would come and die, whether they thought he was talking about some sort of parable about his life, whether it was just a hard teaching that they just couldn't understand. We were just not too certain about what they were thinking, but we know that they just couldn't grasp this idea because it wasn't an idea that they thought of when they thought of a Messiah that their scriptures talked about. And yet, we see this unexpected message best shown through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, right? As we talked about earlier, kingdoms amassed wealth, they amassed territories, right? And they amass pleasures. And yet the Sermon on the Mount turns all of that upside down, which is why a lot of commentators entitle this, um, these three chapters, the upside down kingdom or the backwards kingdom, because of the things Jesus talked about, about the kingdom that he came to bring, were so backwards and so upside down. Think about, you know, amassing wealth, right? The Sermon on the Mount tells us that we will amass wealth, but it's going to be you're amassing for yourself treasures in heaven. But what you're going to do with your earthly wealth is you're going to give it away because the people who are needy and the people who are poor need that more than you do. So actually, you're going to give wealth away. You're not going to amass it. This is what his kingdom looks like. His kingdom also looks like not, not amassing territory, right, or power uh, through the means of war, which evidently means the death of others. You're not just supposed to not kill somebody. You're not even supposed to have anger in your heart for somebody because that's the issue, right? You're not supposed to amass for yourself pleasures in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's not about, once again, acquiring many wives. You're actually supposed to remain faithful to one spouse. Backwards, it's upside down. An unexpected message, which brings me to my second point, an unexpected entry. So a Messiah, a king, eventually when they, when they would bring their victory in through the, uh, the gates of their kingdom, um, they would parade through the, uh, through, the, through the streets that would lead them up to uh, the gate of their kingdom. Um, and the king or, or the victor would come on this grandiose chariot led by four horses as they parade their spoils through the streets and shout victory. And eventually they would make their way through the front gates of their kingdom and they looked to eventually go to the temple because the next thing they, they would do is they would offer the sacrifice to whatever the gods they worshipped, sacrifices of thanksgiving, thanking them for the victory. And yet Jesus does something very different. We pick up now in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11 to read uh, the Palm Sunday celebration. So we'll read Matthew 21, verses... 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This uh, prophet was Zechariah. This was already the verses that we read, but to reiterate, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. 
the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Celebration, a triumphal entry, and yet an unexpected one. Not on a grandiose chariot led by four horses, but humility, right? Riding on a donkey in a colt. Instead of, instead of this grandiose parade that uh, led their spoils through the city and made their way to the temple um, to sacrifice thanksgiving to, to their gods, he does something unexpected as well. Continuing from verse 11, Jesus does make, him, Jesus does make his way to the temple. It says, Jesus entered the temple area. And what did he do? Instead of offering sacrifices, he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables and money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But then the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children that were shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you not hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. To the chief priests, he replies, yes, to the chief priests. Maybe uh, the big time pastor at the day, um, at that time. Um, and also to the teachers of the law, right? Those who have their PhDs, right, in the law in the Old Testament. Jesus replies to them, right? Have you never read, referring to the Old Testament scriptures, uh, pastor or a PhD in Old Testament theology. Have you never read in your books from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Jesus, man, he's a whip. Um, but uh, instead of sacrificing uh, to, to the gods at the time, he actually comes and he makes a mess in the temple. And yet we actually do know that he eventually would make a sacrifice, which brings us to my third final point an unexpected coronation. Uh, the, the week leading up, the celebration of Passover, and then uh, on the day of Passover, there was a custom that they had that a prisoner that they would previously have would, would, would uh, be forgiven and be released. Um, the people got to decide. And at this point in time, they, they did have a prisoner. His name was Barabbas. And they were to decide between him and Pilate gave them the option to decide between Barabbas and, and Jesus. The people uh, deciding that, uh, being persuaded by the chief priests and the elders, they decided to release Barabbas instead of Jesus, to effectively forgive Barabbas instead of forgiving Jesus. The irony of the situation right now. Pilate gave them another option. Um, he gave them another chance to opt out of choosing to release Barabbas, but all the more they insisted saying this, his blood is on us, and on our children. Once again, we read back into this, and we're looking at this and thinking to ourselves, the irony of this situation, right? A crowd shouting his blood be on us and on our children when we know that the, the night before he talked about him 
shedding his blood on all, which would mean their forgiveness. As we pick up the coronation scene, it's in Matthew 27, starting at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around them. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown, a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his hand and knelt before him and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head and again and again they struck him. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. So what happened? How did, how did Israel get this wrong? It's Messiah, this king that they expected because of their own scriptures, encouraging them that there would be a king at one time or another. People would recognize him as the Messiah and they would come and bring salvation for the Jewish people from, uh, from whatever governing authority would have hold of them at the time. I, I, I think what happened here is they overlooked by overemphasis. And what I mean by that is that the, the Jewish people, yes, they were looking for a Messiah to reign as king in, in hopes to relieve them and to alleviate them of their present suffering. But I think in overemphasizing their own suffering, this alleviation of their own suffering for the Jewish people, they missed another role that the Messiah came to take on, the role, once again, from their own scriptures of a suffering servant as laid out in in Isaiah 53. They were looking for some sort of alleviation from their political suffering at the time, but they, they overmissed the, the redemption of their inner suffering, right? The forgiveness of their sins. And yet I'm, I'm wondering if now, 2020, the American church hasn't done the same, except maybe in reverse. You see, a lot of times the American church overemphasizes Christ's work on the cross as it would mean our forgiveness. And maybe that has caused us to overlook the suffering that needs alleviated in our local communities around us. Now, I, I'm not saying, I'm not downplaying the forgiveness of sins that Jesus came to bring. I'm not downplaying any of that. But when we overemphasize one part of Christ's work, causes us to overlook another part of Christ's work. See, we're, we're really good, the American church today, at, at emphasizing the fact that you need salvation. You need an inner alleviation of suffering from your own sins. You need forgiven, which is good, which is true, which is according to Scripture. But what's also true and what's also according to Scripture is the central message of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring, which would not only mean the alleviation of our inner suffering, but the alleviation of our outward suffering, the suffering that happens in our community, the suffering of people who go hungry. You know, we have kids, we have families in our own communities here in America that are going hungry and they are going starving. And the American church has, has been really good at providing a spiritual answer to that, right? Rejoice when you face many trials of different kinds, right? Because we know that this brings about perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope, and yes, they need that, but that's not the only thing that they need. They need food in their stomach. They need water, right? And I think 
I think if you have the ability to alleviate suffering, you have the responsibility to alleviate suffering. You see, we, we recognize the spiritual needs and sometimes we overemphasize the spiritual needs and, and we miss their physical and their more immediate needs of, of food, of water, of clothes, their basic needs that every human deserves, that ever, every human needs. So maybe some of those warnings in Deuteronomy might be applicable for us today. The, the warnings of amassing wealth, amassing power, amassing pleasures, right? And fear that an outside threat might take away their livelihood. Sound familiar? Are there people amassing during this time, during a pandemic, out of fear for their own livelihood? But what, what happens when we amass things, right, in order to not just fill our pantry, to not just fill our, free, to not just fill our fridges, but also to overflow our freezers. But before we've looked to, to overflow our pantries, our fridge, and even our own freezers, have we looked into other, have we looked into the pantries and the fridges of others before we've overflown our, our own freezers, right? Because once again, if we have the ability to alleviate that suffering in our friends' houses and our, our families and in the neighborhoods around us, we have the responsibility to do so. Have we been checking up on our own friends and families and neighbors? But how do I, how do I start this? How do I, surely one person can't do this all on their own, right? And that's the importance of the body of Christ. That's the importance of community um, for our C-A-W-C family, that's the importance of what we continue to do here, um, even in the midst of an empty room. So maybe some basic steps on how to get started, right? Keep updated for whatever local community, whatever local church you continue to tune in and you continue to be part of, of what they're doing in their own neighborhoods. You know, I know we partner with other churches, we partner with other organizations here in, in the Tyrone community in order to make sure that people don't go hungry because there are people going hungry within our own neighborhoods, people who, um, people who miss multiple meals throughout their weeks, right? Uh, that happens in our own neighborhoods. And so we want to make sure that that doesn't happen, that we alleviate the suffering in our own community. Um, donate to your local food banks to... Um, to whatever organizations are taking care of what's happening, right? Donate and give to your churches who are partnering with these different organizations to make that happen. Continue to give here because it's needed now more than ever. Get plugged in, right? Get plugged into a Bible study, a connect group that's continually meeting and so that we can encourage, that we can build one another up in the faith to encourage and spur one another on um, to act, to be mobile, to be the church um, to put feet on the ground here to alleviate the suffering in our community. And continue to tune in as, as we're doing here. Continue to tune in um, and to join in community. This is just one basic way that the church has always continued to meet in community, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst um, of plagues, even in the midst of uh, a pandemic. You see, this, this isn't 
this modern era of technology the first time that we've tuned in and that the body of church has yearned and to make efforts to continue to meet in the, in the face of a pandemic. Long before any type of technology like this, churches during the Middle Ages, during plagues, during leprosy, were making accommodations for their own communities. See, the, the huge churches that were built at the time, they actually drilled holes into the walls so that people could, who were infected by leprosy or whatever at the time could still come in and still meet on the outside of the walls looking in. Familiar, because it's, it's what we're doing right here and right now in the modern technology that we're doing right here and right now. And what they would do is they would still have community. They could still look in and peer through and see uh, that the mass or the service was continually going on because the people of God will always find a way to continue to work and be the body of Christ. They will continue to find a way to work in community. So I want to encourage you to continue meeting as the church has always found a way to do during this time. Uh, now more than ever, continue to make that connection. So maybe uh, uh, if, you're, if you're thinking to yourself, how, what, what category might I fall into? Maybe, maybe you've come to know the forgiveness of Christ and uh, your inner suffering has been alleviated because you know with confidence that Christ has forgiven you, Christ has redeemed you, and that one day you will be present um, with Jesus in the afterlife, which is fantastic, which is wonderful, which is a true message from his written word, but maybe it stopped there. Maybe, maybe you grew content. Maybe you grew content in knowing that, well, my inner suffering is alleviated. I know even my family around me, I'm making effort to, to make sure their inner suffering is alleviated. Um, but maybe... Maybe we've grown content. Maybe we've grown content and apathetic and, and maybe lazy. But the kingdom of God, the message that Jesus came to bring, spurs us on to once you alleviate, the, once the inner suffering within you is alleviated, that makes you a more effective Christian to continue to make sure that the local community around you, um, that their suffering is also alleviated. So it's a starting point. It's not an ending point. Maybe, maybe it's the reverse for you. Maybe, you know, you, you've, you've gone to church. Maybe you do your best um, to make sure that people are taken care um, People are taken care of. Maybe, you know, you donate money to, to the church. You donate money to organizations that are making sure the suffering in their community is alleviated. But maybe, maybe your own suffering within you hasn't been alleviated. Maybe you haven't come before Christ and and looked to, to make a commitment that would be life-altering and life-changing. You've been doing the good things that Christ has called you to do, which is good, but know that you'll be more effective when the suffering within you is alleviated, right? So with those points in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this time, we can still come together. We can still be connected as the church has always found a way to do. That we can continue to stay tuned in, to be a part of the services that are happening here so that the body of Christ may be built up and continue to live out what it means to be a community even during a pandemic. Father, encourage those who, who haven't committed their lives to Christ in order to alleviate the suffering within them who haven't thought about what it means to be forgiven, who haven't thought about what it means to live out, what it means a life of freedom, even though they've been doing the quote-unquote right things. 
to know that once the suffering within them is alleviated, they will be free, they will be encouraged, they will be built up to be a more holistic and more effective Christian. Father, we, we pray once again for the one who, who has asked for forgiveness, who has made a commitment to live for you, who has made a commitment um, knowing that their own personal redemption is solidified in the fact that they've recognized you as their Savior, you as their Lord, and you as their Messiah and their King. But maybe it's stopped there. Maybe they've grown content. Maybe we've been lazy. Maybe we've been apathetic. Forgive us of that and encourage us that the kingdom of God doesn't just mean our own inner sufferings are alleviated, but that the suffering within our own communities will be alleviated because the people of God will take on the responsibility. The responsibility because they have the ability, not just as individuals, but as a community working together together to alleviate the suffering within their own community. Father, encourage us, challenge us, renew us, motivate us to be more effective Christians, living out what it means to live within the kingdom of God that Jesus, you came to preach and inaugurate. It's in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, we pray today. Amen.